of all, I want to say it was really wonderful. So many people asked me as I walked in this morning if I was feeling better. I kind of forgot that I was off sick last week until all these people asked me that. I felt very important uh, and it was very nice to be so welcomed back. Uh, so with the combined service uh, at the with Mosaic tonight, um, we're taking a week off from our series on Galatians and Alex said I could preach on whatever I want, which I don't really like to be honest. It's like that thing when you've got too much choice and it all just becomes too hard. So what I did was I went and found a lectionary, um, which is like a, they, they collect various passages, some Old and some New Testament, and they space it out over one to three years. So I went and found a lectury, lectionary so I didn't have to choose. Um, and uh, just forewarning, I really liked lots of the passages in there. So we're going to be focusing mostly on the Romans 8 one today, but I'll be dipping in and out of uh, John 3, 1 to 17 and Isaiah 6, 1 to 8 as well. So we'll be moving around a little bit. And after the service today, I'd really encourage you when you get home, look at those three passages and read through them together and see how um, from the different parts of the Bible they come together to really give us a good understanding of what it means to be reconciled with Christ, um, because that's what we'll be talking about today. In 1995, an American man named Timothy McVeigh undertook what was to that point the worst act of terrorism that had taken place on American soil. McVeigh was acting out against what he saw was an unjust government. In the process uh, of bombing a federal building, he killed 168 people, including one Julie Marie Welch, the only daughter and the only family of a man named Bud Welch. Her death was tragic and it caused Bud to spiral into uh, a pit of rage against McVeigh, alcoholism and self-loathing. McVeigh was sentenced to death for the act and there was nothing that Bud Welch wanted more in those months following the bombing except for the death of this Timothy McVeigh. He even said, I would have killed him myself if I'd had the chance. So a passage from Romans 8 today begins by saying, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When we look around the world, we can see plenty of people living out of the flesh. Living out of the flesh basically means just when we put our ourselves and our own stuff over and above God, where God is meant to be at the center of our lives or the top priority of our lives, however you look at it, uh, living in the flesh means other stuff gets in the way of that. Now, of course, for people who are living out of the flesh, um, they probably wouldn't be able to identify this themselves. But I think one of the good things about being a person is, while it is quite often difficult to do so, we generally try and steer ourselves on a path of self-improvement. Maybe you'd call me an optimist by saying that. Maybe you'd call me naive in saying that. But I do believe that generally, uh, you know, we're trying to improve ourselves as people. The problem in most cases is that we don't know where we need to improve. We don't know that we're living out of the flesh. Whether it's something that we've grown up with in our household and that's just how it is or something drilled into us by our culture and society, um, 
you know, often in many areas, we're hypocrites. For all the intention and even talk of improving ourselves and giving ourselves over to God and making Him in the center, we inevitably have things in our lives that we ignore or overlook that are causing us to place other stuff over God. But where does that come from? Like I said, as people, I think we're generally trying to become better as individuals and as a whole society. So where does it all go wrong? Reading on in verse 15, uh, in Romans 8, it says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption. What causes us to live out of the flesh, whether we recognize uh, that is what we're doing or not, do is that is what we're doing or not, is often plain and simple fear. And my theory is that we can pretty much boil down anything that gets in the way of God and living out of the Spirit uh, is that it comes down to one of two things. Living out of the flesh comes down to one of two things. Fear and decadence. Fear being when we act out of self-preservation, we try and control and protect our own lives or maybe our little tribe. Um, and decadence when kind of like hedonism when we try and maximize our own lives. We don't actually care about our life because we're, we're trying to seek pleasure, trying to eke every drop of enjoyment out of lives. In that way, they're kind of opposites. Uh, fear, trying to protect, hold on to life as much as possible, secure your own safety, and decadence, which is often quite death-dealing in the way that it causes us to seek out enjoyment or trying to live life to the full you know that's the stereotype of the rock star the partying the taking drugs all of that stuff often they don't live very healthy lives both fear and decadence get in the way of god the thing is both fear and enjoyment of life are good things in and of themselves they're not terrible things um, some fear is good now in cricket i'm an opening batter I think this is my fourth sermon, and I think I'm three for four for talking about cricket. I promised you I loved it, and here it is again. So I'm an opening batter in cricket, um, and that means I'm out there, I'm facing the very first ball. This is when is the ball is at its fastest, it's when the ball is at its hardest, it's swinging the most through the air, it's hardest to predict, um, and that's a bit scary. That's a bit scary. I have a very real fear of getting hit. I've been hit, it's really not nice, it really hurts. I've got a fear of losing my wicket because if I go out, then I can't score any runs. I let myself down. I let my team down. But the fear helps me to understand the very real risk of the situation that I'm in and what's at stake. If I was to give in to the fear of that situation, just shut down, not try and score any runs and protect my wicket, if I was to give in to the fear, well, then I'd be letting my team down as well because I'd be wasting all their time and not actually getting any runs. Similarly, in cricket, perhaps a decadent way of batting would be to go out and try and hit a six every ball, because I reckon that's really fun for me, and I might get away with one or two, but I'd go out pretty quickly and end up letting down the team again. The trouble is not that we have fear, and the trouble is not that we enjoy life. It's giving in to these things and letting them get over and above God. And when we live out of fear, and when we live out of decadence, we are not people of reconciliation. When we are self-serving, whether that's uh, for security purpose or whether that's the purpose of finding pleasure, reconciliation isn't even on the cards because 
We don't see a need to be reconciled with anyone else. Uh, maybe outside of ourselves or our little tribe that we stick to because we don't want to walk outside it. Instead, we need to realize that we have received a spirit of adoption and be led by the Spirit of God. Then as verse 17 says, uh, we become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. This is part of the paradox of our God, part of the paradox of placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't understand His ways all the time, but He promises that when you don't give in to fear, or you don't give in to decadence, when you don't try and secure yourself, then you get life. When you stop trying to be in charge of every bit of uh, your own security and control, well, then God will secure, secure you, not just in this life, but in the next as well. And when you stop trying to squeeze every bit of pleasure out of life for yourself, God will give you a joy that is beyond any earthly pleasure. Bud Welch, about a year after that terrible bombing, which took the life of his daughter and only family, visited the site of the bombing like he was doing every day. He was hungover. At this stage, he was always hungover. He was self-pitying and he was angry. But on this particular day, looking over the site of the wasteland that once was this thriving office workplace, with a splitting headache, Bud thought to himself, I have to do something different because what I'm doing isn't working. Thinking about it over the course of a few weeks, uh, he realized that what was causing him to spiral down into this pattern of self-destruction was the same rage and the same hate that Timothy McVeigh had acted out of when he had bombed that building in the first place. The thoughts of vengeance, the thoughts of the death penalty being justice were the same thoughts that that bomber had been thinking about when he'd carried out his mission. Welch knew he had to change because if he followed this path, the only thing that could follow was death, whether it was his own or whether it was someone else's. I've just spoken about what happens when you live in a world where people live out of the flesh, uh, when we live out of fear and decadence, but in John 3, verses 1 to 17, Jesus tells us what happens when we live as people of reconciliation and what the source of that reconciliation is. If you've been a Christian for many years, and I ask you right now to recite John 3.16 for me, I think a lot of you would have a pretty, uh, be able to get it pretty close to what it is. Um, John 3.16 is this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That is the paradox again. God gave life, his own life, so that we can have eternal life. In verse 17 it goes on, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The whole story of the Bible has been this story. God working through history to redeem and reconcile us humans who fall short. All throughout the Old Testament is the story of a people group of Israel who keep on putting other stuff in front of God. And time and time again, God has stepped in where they have fallen short and reconciled them back to Him. Along the way, Israel has had to live with the consequences uh, of their sin, 
God has given them over to punishment, given them over to exile and many other things throughout history, but in the end, he would reconcile them back to himself. And now in the New Testament, we have Jesus who reconciled us to him on the cross once for all. That God who has reconciled humanity over and over again throughout history has reconciled us individually as well, and that is the source. Our God is a redeemer. That is in his character. That is in his spirit. So when we act out of the spirit, we can't help but become a people of reconciliation to the people that we encounter because we're being people of the spirit. We're being people who uh, act in line with the character of God, acting in love and justice and mercy and humility. In verse 3 of John 3, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's this rebirth that means we no longer live in the flesh and we start to live out of the Spirit instead. And then going to verses 7 and 8, it says, Do do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, the word for spirit in Greek is the same word for wind. The word is pneuma, with a P at the start, like a pneumatic drill or pneumatic tire. So when he says that we are born of the spirit, that's pneuma with a capital P, and the wind, lowercase p pneuma, uh, blows where it pleases. He's saying that people with the spirit are like the wind. You, have, uh, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but there is this powerful invisible force for good in the world and in you that makes real change when we are reconciled with jesus when we are born from above when we have that same wind that same spirit of reconciliation within us uh, we can take that out into the world and we can share it with others as well bud welch after having this epiphany that his vengeance and hatred could only lead to more death, changed his life dramatically. He went and saw the father of Timothy McVeigh, uh, sorry, he saw the father of Timothy McVeigh, Bill, on the television and recognized uh, a pain in Bill's eyes and also a physical pain. Uh, And Bud Welch recognized this pain because it was the same one that he was feeling, the same feeling of torment and the pain of loss that had come about through this tragic event. Bud visited that family one afternoon, the McVeigh family, and they sat and they talked and they cried together and they bonded together in that moment over their shared grief. Welch, having first been transformed within himself, reconciling that hatred within him, was now turning it to love and was able to reconcile with the McVeigh family And for the first time, both Bud and Bill were able to share their pain together and lift that burden of doing it alone. Bud Welch also went on to become one of the biggest campaigners for abolishing the death penalty in the US and worked tirelessly to stop the execution of Timothy McVeigh from going forward, the man who had killed his daughter. In the end, they weren't able to overturn that decision uh, and as you may know, the death penalty is still, in, uh, still active in many states 
of America, um, but Bud Welch continues to be one of the biggest advocates to get rid of that um, capital punishment. The last passage I'll touch on is Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. Now, I won't read it all out, but again, I encourage you, uh, read these passages together. Take these three passages and read them out when you get home. See how they fit together. Give us a picture of reconciliation. So Isaiah chapter 6 is the prophet Isaiah's calling passage. It's kind of like his resume that says he's qualified to do the job of being a prophet. He has a vision. And in verse 1, uh, it says, or Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated high and lofty, uh, seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Skipping a couple of verses to 5 and continuing to 8. Um, Isaiah says in response to this glorious thing that he's seeing, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responded, Here am I, send me. There's rich symbolism in this vision as Isaiah is purified. The hot coal that touches his lips encompassing both uh, fire, which is a, a, an agent of purifying and cleansing, as well as it being taken from the altar, the same altar on which sacrifices of the Old Testament were made to atone for the sins of the people. Uh, really rich imagery here. Isaiah is reconciled to God. In the space of probably only seconds, Isaiah goes from, Woe is me, to here am I, send me. We have been reconciled too. We have the Spirit of God. The challenge for me in reading this passage from Isaiah is, am I ready to be sent? When God calls, when the wind of the Spirit blows, am I ready to go with it? Am I bold enough to say, here am I, send me? I've told the story of Bud Welch today because I just think it's an incredible story of transformation and of him reconciling within himself with God and taking that out into the world and, you know, being ready to say, no matter what this man did, here am I, send me, send me to save people. But that's just one story of reconciliation. Obviously, uh, we're in the middle of Reconciliation Week at the moment, which is taking place during this time period to... Uh, cover the dates of the 1967 referendum and the Mabo decision in the High Court. Two incredibly important dates which were significant milestones in those steps towards a true reconciliation. But we know that a lot more needs to be done. Uh, now I can stand up here and give you some theology about what reconciliation is and where it comes from. Uh, but like Isaiah, you need to be ready to be sent. You need to be ready when the opportunity arises. And opportunities are always arising. Uh, but like the things in our lives where we live out of the flesh, sometimes we're just blind to them. Sometimes we're ignorant, deliberately or otherwise, because it's too hard to see. But 
regardless of our background, regardless of where we've been or where we're going or how good or bad we've been at this in the past, we need to be on this stuff uh, because we're all children of God. We're all called to be reconciled with Christ and bring that to every child of God that we come across. If you're not sure where to start, well, you can go to the National Reconciliation Week website. If you go on there, they've got a tab called Actions and they'll give you 20 tangible things that you can do straight away to help to be an agent of reconciliation right now. And under each of those 20 things, they've got one that says uh, to how to be an ally and how to be brave so that no matter where you're at, you can take the step, um, whether it's a, a starting step or whether you feel like you're ready to be sent, there are tangible, practical things that you can do. Um, and as we look around our workplaces and unis, the local pub, wherever it is that you go in your life, uh, open your eyes, be open to seeing moments of reconciliation and moments where you can be agents of reconciliation and bring life and bring the Spirit of God in this world. So, how do we emulate the reconciliation of Christ in our lives? Well, from Romans 8, I think we learn that we need to live without being a, a slave to fear and decadence. No matter what you fear, uh, no matter what gets in the way, God is bigger. God is bigger than the fear itself. God is bigger than the root of what is under that fear. Uh, and He's bigger than even how you feel about these things. Don't be a slave to these things, but live in the spirit of adoption to God. From John 3, I think we learn that when you live in that spirit of adoption, you live in the spirit or the wind of God. Listen to God. Be willing to be blown where the spirit takes you. This takes many forms for each of us. Uh, for those who are more spiritually inclined, then perhaps a direct, a direct word or strong feeling from God is something that is comfortable or something you've experienced. For more logically minded people, then uh, meditation, uh, deep thought, a conversation with mature Christians, uh, wise Christians, I'll say no matter where you lie on that spectrum, the more you do of all of these things or any of these things, the more you will find God reveals himself to you and where he wants to put you. And also be aware that the wind you follow is blowing ahead of you. You may only feel it on your back, but it is traveling ahead of you. Wherever you go, God is there and the spirit of God is there already working and he has a plan and a purpose for you in that place that he is sending you so follow the spirit follow the wind and he'll put you where he wants you to contribute to his work to transform and reconcile lives and communities and from isaiah 8 uh, speaking of following god into the places that he's working just be ready to be sent isaiah was ready he knew he wasn't perfect. In fact, he said, I'm not worthy. I, I'm not worthy of the standard of God. I, I have unclean lips. Uh, but I also think Isaiah knew he wasn't going to be the one that changes anyone's heart through his ministry. He can be an agent of reconciliation, but it's God's job to transform people. And in being sent on this mission of redemption and reconciliation, uh, God made the first move. When Isaiah said, I'm unclean, God was the one with the coal saying, you are clean now. I'm sending you. 
I've reconciled you to me. And after that moment, it's when Isaiah says, yes, send me. So God has cleansed and reconciled us, and he's even given us his spirit. And there's always more to learn in life, but God has made us ready now. Even if they're the first steps, he's made us ready now to go and be people, be agents of reconciliation in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you sent Jesus down. We thank you that you sent him to reconcile us to you. That no matter what gets in the way, the fear, the decadence, whatever it is in our lives, the things that we are blind to or the things that we see, that you are bigger than those things and you can transform us and remove those things from our path, that you can help us with those obstacles, that we can be people who are right, that we can be people who are right to be with you and reconciled to you. Lord, we thank you that you give us your spirit, the wind that blows, the powerful invisible force that sends us and that empowers us to undertake your work in this world. And Lord, we pray that when it's easy and when it's hard, we can make the decision to say, here am I, send me. We can make the decision to say, yes, I will be an agent of reconciliation in this world. Uh, and that we can lean on you, lean into you, and know that no matter our shortfallings and the places where we stuff up, that you cover us, that you empower us, and that you can use us to bring about your kingdom right here on earth today. Amen.